I want to begin, I was reminded this week of a, of a, of a race run some time ago. It was, it's, it's called the Miracle Mile. This was the year that man broke the four-minute mile. That barrier, in fact, uh, two men, by the time of this fateful race, these two men, Roger Bannister and Floyd Landy, had both run just a hair under a four-minute mile. Each of them had done it. Bannister first, and then Landy. Landy, the Australian. Now, now they're, they're coming together for the, for the British Empire Commonwealth Games in Vancouver, B.C., the other one. And uh, this statue commemorates that race. Because as they fly around the track, Bannister knows his opponent, and he knows he's good, he knows he's fast, and he's got a strategy. He's thinking round about the, the third lap, he's going he's gonna to take it a little easier or so. He's going he's gonna to rest in the third lap so that he can pour it on in the fourth. But the third lap comes around, and Landy begins to take off. And so Bannister's got to keep up with them. And they both accelerate and they run around the third lap. And they, they keep going and they're close. They're within a... Now, Landy has been ahead the whole race. But they're within a, a few meters, a few yards of each other. And coming around the last turn, just coming into the last turn, there's Landy. Landy is still in front. But in this picture, you just see him Start to, as they come around that last turn, it's the final straightaway to the finish line. And, and the crowd could witness a four-minute mile. And, and uh, in the roar of the crowd, Landy can no longer hear where Bannister is at. He doesn't know where he is behind him, how far back, or is he closing. And so he turns and looks over his left shoulder. And as he looks back... And he doesn't see him over his left shoulder, so he, 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 he turns and looks again. And as he looks over his left shoulder, Bannister sees his time. And that break of the momentum, you don't run the same when your body turns and looks back. And he comes, behind him, comes by him on his right side, passes Landy, holds the lead, gains a couple of yards in that change of rhythm, and Bannister wins the Miracle Mile. There's the finish line. The only time he was ahead of the whole race were those last few meters. And, and uh, the race has been reviewed and the celluloid clips, the, uh, the, the, uh, the film strip run over and over again and the still photos captured over and over again. In fact, uh, go back to that very first slide again. That statue sits, out, sits there in Vancouver, B.C. today, memorializing this moment when Bannister is just pulling ahead and, uh, and, uh, and Floyd Landy is starting to look back over his left shoulder. That turning back, that looking back at what lies behind. The Apostle Paul often speaks in in sports figures or analogies. And he brings up one here that was demonstrated before the world on that day in August 7th, 1954. And that is there's only one way to get there from here. And the Apostle Paul sums it up, sums it up in these words that you've heard, heard before. This one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining 
toward or forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, forgetting what lays behind and pressing on to what lies ahead. In the book of Philippians, we have been uh, considering what do we learn at the end of Paul's life? What does he have to say to that church in Philippi, a church dear to him, a church that could easily misunderstand and be discouraged by his present confinement, the, the, the seeming limitations on his ministry, all that Paul cannot do? And uh, what's going to happen to him? And what does this mean for the Christian faith as, as a whole? We, we, we thought this would be going differently at this point. And it seems that uh, our, the enemies of the gospel seem to be winning. And Paul writes to that church and he encourages them that, that uh, the ones whom Christ has made free are free indeed. That, that these, these chains, this, this confinement that Paul is now in in Rome from which he writes this letter to, to, to Philippi, he writes to Colossae, he writes to, to the church at Ephesus as well. These, the, this letter in particular has, has a, a, a tone of, of joy in it. It has the air of freedom in it, that there's perhaps nobody in the empire freer than Paul in the midst of his confinement. And it's about perspective. It's about reality. We just sang a song, Ancient Words. And was it is about these words that the church recognized through history that that which was written here, this was unique. This, along with other writings and other letters and the Gospels and, of course, the previously the writings of the prophets, that these particular messages were not merely given by Paul to Philippi, but these are words given by the Spirit of the living God through his messenger to the church in a way that strengthened the church in those early centuries, generation after generation, and has continued to do so today. So we, we, we've been spending time the last several weeks looking at this particular letter, free indeed, uh, reminded of the goal that is set before us, reminded of a prize for which we strain toward. And that there's only one way to get there. As I was thinking about the, the, the goal and directions, and there's not only directions, but there's distractions. I was reminded of a time when we were wandering the far south of Swaziland when, uh, when uh, Julie and I and our family were there with a the radio ministry, and we entered the south corner, south uh, east corner of the country, and this is, this is a, uh, a very... Um, remote and rural area. There's not a lot here. We, we just passed the gas station. The gas station didn't have electricity. It had hand-cranked pumps. I hadn't seen that before. And uh, we stopped and asked somebody for directions. And the common, the common response in Swaziland, if they didn't know how, if, if they didn't know the directions to get from one place to another, they would say something like this, you can't get there from here. Well, really? You can't get there from here. There's not a road that goes from here to there. It might be a dirt road. It might, there must be a road that connects to other roads that do get there from here. And there were. 
But sometimes we're confused or sometimes we're not sure of the way. And, and, and what, what Paul does here in this passage is, he, is he, he goes around a circle, first of all, kind of in more general terms. He speaks more generally about this pressing forward, this uh, pressing into maturity, forgetting past religion, forgetting past accomplishments, perhaps forgetting past failures, and to uh, keep an eye on the goal and to press forward. He first says that generally, and then he gets specifically, specific. He, he, he returns to that same loop in, chapter, in, in verse 17. He, he gives a specific that we can do. He warns us of particular things to not be distracted and drawn aside by, and again, specifically what to keep our eye on in the future. So imagine we're going around a circle twice this morning. But, but, but the, it's going to tighten. The loop's going to tighten and get a little more specific the second time around. And I think from there, it's meant to get a little more specific still. It's, a, it's supposed to take another circle for you in particular. What do I need to press into? What do I need to forget? What do I know is set before me? Let's read in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, and verses 12 to 21. If you're using the church Bible, you'll find us again on page 981. Philippians chapter 3, from verse 12. It says, not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, mature, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature, perfect, think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained the ground we have gained. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me, Paul says. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to this example that you have in us. For many, whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, my sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this. The natural question, first of all, would be, not that I have already obtained what? What is he talking about? The previous, the previous verses, verses 10 and 11, talked about this resurrection life, the life of Christ lived in my life, the knowing of the risen Savior as I walk with him and as I experience his life in my life. Paul says, I haven't arrived there yet. 
I haven't obtained. I'm not already perfect. Now, interesting, there used to be uh, more of a theological debate than there is today. You'll, you'll still run into people from a, from a particular church background that would say, you know, the Christian can live a perfect life. A Christian can live uh, without ever sinning again. Some of us have arrived. Well, Paul hadn't. And I think just from the realism of experience that they, the, uh, although that view might be held as a potential as a possibility, few there are that would actually say, I'm there. Certainly Paul recognized the reality of our human flesh, the reality of our fallenness that continues to hinder us. He says, I'm not already perfect. But that word perfect is not merely a flawless, nothing wrong, Perfect has to do with, with the idea of reaching the intended end. Not that I have yet achieved the goal. It, it, it's not merely reaching a goal, but it's, it's the meeting of, the accomplishing of the intended purpose. The verb form of the same word is what Jesus cried out on the cross when he said, It is, it is finished. He achieved, he accomplished in his death for us, that which he came, that which he took on humanity to do. He died in our place. It is finished. He reached his goal. Paul says, I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived. Verse 13, I, I, I haven't yet made it my own. It's all about direction. It's all about I'm moving in this direction. I'm pressing ahead. I'm not looking behind. I'm going forward, not backward. Tomorrow, not yesterday. I love the way the NIV uh, translate this phrase. I press on to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. If you're a believer in Jesus, it's because Jesus has laid hold on you. That he has laid on, hold on you and he has his plan and his purpose for you. Remember how the book started in verse 6. That he who began a good work in you will be what? Faithful to complete it. God has the end in view. God has the goal in focus. And so we join in that good work that he is doing in us as we turn our attention, our focus to that same goal. Forgetting what lies behind. Now, we have to think of the, the verses again that just lie behind, that, 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 that just preceded this. We're going to understand. What is it that lies behind? Paul already talked about the, 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 the religious confidence that he once had. The confidence that he once had in, in what family he came from and how he grew up and his, his, his Jewish heritage and his training as a Pharisee, his observance of the law. And he said, all of that is a load of rubbish. He, he said, I count that as dung that I would instead claim Christ and trust in him. Forgetting what lies behind certainly is a sense of forgetting any sense of accomplishment that I have in myself, that which I can do, that which I can merit. Perhaps there's also something there about forgetting past achievement, forgetting what progress I've made so far and rather focusing instead on 
There's the lesson to learn from, from Floyd Landy. The, the point was not the, the um, over three and three quarter, or rather, let's see, not between three quarter mile, but seven eighths or nine tenths of the mile that he had already run. That was not the focus. The focus was on the last stretch yet ahead of him. And when he turned around to look back, that's when he lost ground. Forgetting what lies behind in the sense of self-righteousness, forgetting perhaps even previous advance, previous growth, resting on our spiritual laurels because you don't bear fruit on old growth. Pruning happens that we would bear new fruit on new growth. Forgetting perhaps also past failures, past sin or hurts which hold you back. Another old race. Perhaps you know of this one. There was a competition. There was a rivalry between Scotland and France. And there's a, there's a, a, um, a track and field event. I forget the, uh, the, 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 the name of this particular. But uh, there they are. And all through the day, it's been neck and neck, Scotland and France. And now most of the events are finished, but it's time for the 440-yard dash. And going into the first turn, all the runners are all bunched up, shoulder to shoulder, and one of them gets pushed, and he falls to the ground. The easy thing there would have been to say a few words, to get up, to brush yourself off, and to walk the other direction, knowing that this race is lost. I got a raw deal. Somebody tripped me. Somebody pushed me. But there's nothing to be done about it now. Just walk off the track, walk off the stage. Take my gear and go home. Not this runner. Push down, getting up about 20 yards behind everybody else. He sets out running again, and his legs are flying, his arms are flying, his, his head is up and back, and off he goes around the one corner, next corner, next corner. And perhaps you've seen the movie in the Chariots of Fire where Eric Little catches the pack, passes the pack, runs the race after being pushed and falling down on that first turn of a one-lap race, forgetting what lays behind, forgetting even times when I have fallen because that fall never defined Eric Little. It was his running of the race that defined him. In fact, it was also which race that he would run that defined him. Forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward to what lays ahead. I think of Paul's own experience. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you have it at the bottom of the backside of your bulletin. Paul says, who am I that I would be an apostle? I am the least of all the apostles. He said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. There was effort. There was intentionality. There was focus in Paul's life that God would use him the way he did because Paul made particular, particular choices. There was intentionality. And yet he qualifies that very quickly, that this is not a matter of merely his effort. This is not a matter of his focus. This is not a matter of his strength. I labored, some versions read, more abundantly than they all. Yet, not I, 
but the grace of God that is with me. God's grace in me to enable me to fly. That's the difference that, 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 that Paul has in mind here when he talks about forgetting the past and it's focused on what I can do. It's focused on self-effort and accomplishment and pressing on instead to what lays ahead in that life of walking with the risen Christ. Paul says, I've not, deni- I've not arrived, but I won't be denied. I'm not home yet, but I will press on. Paul seems to acknowledge that he still fails. Certainly you get that when you read through Romans 6, 7, and 8, and, and you have Paul's confession. In fact, you have that anguish, anguished cry that he voices so well for all of us. That which I, I, I don't want to do, I find myself doing. That which I would do, I don't. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? Who will deliver me from my weak humanity? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul acknowledges that he still fails. He sins even though he wants to be perfected and so he presses on toward the Lord's perfection, intentionally straining forward rather than wallowing in in failure or unworthiness. There's an important balance here. We need to be We need to be aware of who we are in Christ and continue to step, making choices that step into that identity. This agrees with who God has called me and made me to be. We step into that identity rather than the imbalance on one side is assuming that I am positionally perfect. In Jesus, I'm perfect. So the choices that I do for now in the midst of this broken life really don't matter because in Jesus, at least, positionally, theologically, I'm perfect. So the present day-to-day of life really doesn't matter so much. That's the imbalance on one side. On the other side, it's the focusing on the failure that suggests it's no use even trying. I've had... Somebody tell me before, I guess the victorious Christian life is meant for some people, but apparently it's not meant for me. That's an overestimation, first of all, of the perfection of others, and it's also an underestimation of God's goal for you in Christ. That he intends to take you all the way to the finish line. He intends to go all the way to the goal. He intends that that which he cried out ahead of us for us, it is finished, will be cried out in celebration over the life of each believer that he brings home into his presence. It is finished. My work in you and your fellowship with me now reaches its perfect culmination, in which every step you took toward that in the midst of life, that workshop of faith preparing us for eternity, every step then has opened up our vista a little wider to comprehend for all eternity the glory and goodness and the character of God toward us. So what we do now does greatly matter. It does make a difference. We press on toward his goal for us. 
knowing that that is his intention for it. It's not his intention that some people are going to get the victorious life, other people, sorry, you just don't get that. Paul describes an active, a gritty, a determined pursuit of Jesus that's not unlike a pursuit in combat. It's the same kind of words that are used. In fact, some commentators pull out parallel phrases between a classic Greek description of a pursuit in combat to the words that Paul uses here. It's like John the Baptist in the wilderness calling out to the, 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 the Pharisees' false zeal on one side and the populace's blind complacency on the other. This is like those four friends who won't be denied. They know Jesus is in that house. And the place is packed. The yard is full. There's no way in the front door, so they're going to climb up on the roof. One way, somehow, if by any means, we're going to get our buddy in front of Jesus. That's the intentionality that Paul's talking about here. I press on to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Paul's determined to keep advancing in his knowing and growing in Jesus. What next step am I taking to be growing together in faith with other growing believers? What next question of trust am I facing? Can I trust the Lord with this? Will he come through? Or do I need to fall back onto my own resources? Do I need to look around at what other resources do I have? aside from trusting Christ? What do I need to be laying aside so that I can lay hold? Paul's determined to keep it advancing, and as some would say, I get this line from the uh, Forrest Gump movie, maturity is as maturity does. That maturity is not merely a mark of time spent. Maturity is really a measure of outcome, of growth, of advancement. Paul says in verse 15, let those who are mature, there's our same word again, perfect. He said, none of us are yet perfect, I'm not yet perfect, but let, but let the one who relatively would consider themselves mature toward the goal perfect in, in some ways, live in that. Think in this way. If anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Let us hold true to what we've attained. What you say you've attained, let's see it. Paul sounds a little like James here. Those of us who would say, I have stepped forward in faith in Christ. I have been pressing toward the goal. Keep going. Let's see it. I think there's, there's a, a call to authenticity here, to live in who we would suppose ourselves to be. What ground that we would, in a recognition, okay, those who would say, I am, I'm a mature Christian, and, and we have mature Christians in this church. Of course we do, and, and thank God we do. Because those are examples that, that, that others of us can follow. They, they have already shown this is a path toward victory. This is, this is a life that can be lived in the midst of this world with all of its distractions. And though not perfectly, they do put steps ahead of us on the path that show us the way to go. And, and Paul says, if you're one of those, 
if you would be one of those. And it's not proud to say, I'm going to press on in maturity. Then if I would, think in this way, continue straining. Not resting in the progress I've made so far. I think in this pressing on, this straining against a current which is against us, I'm reminded of salmon or steelhead. The return upstream. There is a goal. There's something in them that after two to three years out in the ocean, now's the time. This is the season. It's time to return. And they have some kind of geomagnetic GPS in their heads that causes them to locate roughly the same area of the ocean where their river or stream uh, flows in. And there's something apparently about the smell of that home stream that that salmon or steelhead homes in on, and up they go. But it's an uphill battle. It's literally uphill because water runs downhill, right? It's an uphill battle, and it's against the current the whole way. And so the fish will pace itself to some extent. They will press on and they will battle against the shallows where the currents are running very rapidly and quickly. And they will sometimes have to jump up over barriers one after another and, and make hard-fought games, gains very intentionally to get upstream. And then they will rest in the deeper pools where the water isn't moving nearly so fast. They can hide behind a rock where the water isn't flowing against them at nearly the same rate. But you know what? The water is always flowing against them. And you and I live in that same kind of current. Sometimes it's obvious and rapidly roaring in the opposite direction. And it's all we can do to keep our bearing, and yet you know the way to go is exactly opposite of this raging current. So the current, in that sense, makes it a little easier to know the direction to go in. Sometimes the current can be deceiving. It's slower and deeper. And it doesn't feel like the water's really hardly moving at all. And yet it is. Every drop of water in that river or mountain stream is all flowing downward toward the ocean. I remember my first steelhead. I think I was about 12. My uncle took me up to Lake Monte Cristo near Lake Stevens up north. And uh, uh, there we were out in the middle of nowhere, and we're well up from the ocean. And there's a, there's a stream that flows out of Lake Monte Cristo. There's a stream that flows in Lake Monte Cristo. So the steelhead come into Lake Monte Cristo, but they're not done yet. Okay? They've still got more to travel, but this is a resting spot. Okay? We're going we're gonna to tide over here just briefly. <sighs> Regain our strength. And then up we go. And they're not eating by this time anymore. I found out. You wear polarized glasses, and in the shallows of the, of the lake is a beautiful lake. You can see them laying in there resting. And so you take your lure, and you cast it, and you run it by them, and they watch it go. And you cast it again. You run it by them, and they watch it go. 
And the idea is you keep tempting them, maybe irritating them, that sooner or later, though they're not interested in feeding, sooner or later you poke at it enough and it's going to snap at that nuisance out there just to get it to go away or to end it. And then you've got them. And, of course, when you're a fishing steelhead, that's when the fun begins. And maybe 30 minutes, maybe an hour later, you land the fish. But, but the fish is hooked. The fish is never going to finish its journey. The fish is never going to reach its goal. It was sidetracked. It was distracted. And Paul warns about that from verse 17. He says, first of all, the, the importance of choosing and being the best examples as compared to the distractions, the currents that are all around us. Join in imitating me. Keep an eye on those who walk according to this example, like you have in us. It's not about Paul. It's also about others. There are those that have gone down this path ahead of you, and that's why it's so important that we gather around with, we join in with, we are known by others who know us and can walk with us, that we are growing together with other growing believers. This is not an, indi an individual, isolated walk. Because we need the example of others, we need to be that example for others. For there are many, he says, I've told you before, I've warned you before, I tell you now, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, these many are not pagans. These many are apparently, it appears to be that they have at least identified as Christians. They've identified with the church, and yet they're not living in that identity in Christ Instead, he says, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. They have not, in that call to discipleship, they have not picked up their cross and followed Jesus. No, the suffering way is not for me. The way of denial, that's not for me. I think of, uh, of a, a voice like um, Kenneth Copeland that says, you know, in, in heaven, when somebody is in heaven, they're not worried about the shortages or the deprivation of, of uh, earthly things any longer. And so it is with somebody who's in Christ. So it is for the Christian. We have all the riches in Christ, and we should never be faced with any deprivation, with any lack, with any need. Yeah, well, it's hard to understand how that would jive with Paul as he writes to the Philippians about joy in Christ from the midst of Roman confinement. A confinement that has stretched on now at least two and a half years, if not longer. There are many who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, their own appetites, their own desires. What I want for me in the comforts of my physical life at present. They even glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. Reminds me of chapter 3 in his letter to Colossae where he says, set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. Set our eyes on the prize that is ahead of us. He warns about of following the wrong example with tears for them and their loss. It's interesting the, the, the care, the sensitivity that Paul has for those that are going the wrong way. This is not a self-righteous attitude. This is not a judgment of others' attitude. But he says, brothers and sisters, be careful who you follow. Be careful what example you take your lead from. 
Imitate me, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me and keep your eyes on others who walk by the same example of intentionally sacrificing myself, intentionally that example that was set before us in chapter 2 of Christ himself and his humility, of Paul pouring his life out for the benefit of others, of Timothy who would, like no other Paul knew, be intentionally focused on their needs of Epaphroditus who would put himself in harm's way, who would expend and be spent in order to advance the cause of others. Those are the kind of examples that he holds before us now. The value of the example is measured in self-denial and in hope in Christ. In contrast to the many that said, this is what you look for. Look for self-denial in someone's life. Look for them giving themselves away for the sake of others. Look for a future hope that focuses on Christ rather than the resources of this world. That does not lay aside the, the kind of, uh, of um, um, w- w- wisdom applied to life and the provisions for oneself and one family that Proverbs talked about. It doesn't mean that whatever I have beyond what I need just today, I should be giving away to somebody else. No, there's wisdom in providing for tomorrow. But don't lose sight of the ultimate tomorrow in the process. It was a strange thing to many of my co-workers when Julie and I left the Air Force after 10 years, which is, well, actually about nine years, almost halfway to a basic retirement. And we, and we left the Air Force, and we, we joined a broadcasting mission called Transworld Radio. We went to Swaziland, Africa. And as I visited with people from my former Air Force life three years later on our first furlough, and they would say, well, how is it? What do you think? What's it like? Are you, do you have any regrets? And I said, well, the, you know, this missionary thing in Africa, the pay's not much, but the retirement is out of this world. And it is. I had a chance to talk to a few people just recently about, about retirement. And, and a shift in retirement that's happening, not merely, well, for some, it's, it's because of some changes economically that necessitated, I'm going to have to work until I, I don't have any strength left. But a lot of times, there's, there's a shift in retirement that says, I'm retiring from this career so that now I can give the energy and the strength and the work that I have yet to do to something that matters even more. Retirement is not, used to be, years ago, I remember my grandparents, retirement was, was sitting, spending the day in the recliner, watching daytime TV, and that'll kill you. And it did, repeatedly. That generation didn't, many of them didn't last very long. My, my grandpa lasted two or three years in, in, in that kind of lifestyle. That's not what we are made for. And I take that, a, a physical earthly example, and I want to apply it spiritually, that we are made to press forward. We are made to look at what lies ahead, to forget what lies behind, to press 
toward the goal of the prize in Christ Jesus. To not be distracted by the things that I desire, by the things that I would like to achieve for myself, by the comfort that I could have, by setting my mind on earthly things, I'm going to have to deny myself. I'm going to have to deny from things that I could have, from things that I could do, from things that I do want, That's the essence of denial. Things that I do want, I'm going to have to lay aside because there is something better. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. And he writes this to a a city that values citizenship probably above any other standing or status. He, He wrote of his own Jewish background that seemed all important to him, but to the people of Philippi, to be a Roman citizen was everything. They had privileges that nobody else had. Paul was even able to exercise those privileges on occasion. And yet, he says, our our real citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He contrasts the thoughts of the day there. First of all, he he identifies with this lowly body. That's contemporary Greek thought. Yeah, this worldly flesh, what does it matter, was where they arrived. And so he says, no, that Jesus will transform this body to be like his glorious body. Even this weak flesh that can only seemingly follow him so imperfectly, and yet even this will be changed. That's where I belong. I'm not there yet. But that's the direction I'm facing. That's the hope that is set before us. That is the call that is upon our heart. We'll let the past fade. We'll lean toward the future. We do that by what we choose in the present day. This one thing I do, Paul says. What's your one thing? I want to close with a a song that echoes in my head. It's by Rich Mullins. You're my one thing. Here's the lyrics. Everybody I know says they need just one thing. I just need one thing. But what they really mean is I need one thing more. It's kind of like asking the guy that has a boat how how, how big of a boat is big enough. And a boat that's big enough is a boat that's just a little bigger than the one I've got. Everybody says they need just one thing, but what they really mean is I need just one thing more, just a little more. And everybody seems to think they've got it coming. Well, I know that I don't deserve you, Lord, but still I want to serve you more and more. You're my one thing. My one thing above everything. There will be some things later today, tomorrow, maybe before you even leave this room, there will be some things that will, will, will be set before you. There will be a choice. And the question to ask there is how does this relate to Jesus as my one thing? How does this align with my life and identity with him and my desire to walk with him and to please him? Is this with that or is this sideways from that? Is this a distraction from that? Is this going to push me away from that? Is this going to slow me down from that? There are choices to be made. And one of the easy measures is, do I have to deny myself in this for the benefit of somebody else? And that presses me closer to him. 
Therefore, my brothers, my sisters, whom I love, whom I long for, my joy and my crown. Paul's desire of eternity was not a crown of gold upon his head. It was measured in those who would gather with him around the throne in worship. He says, you're my joy and my crown. Stand first in this My beloved, stand firm in the Lord by pressing on, forgetting the past, committing to this one greater thing, following other things, following others rather in the one thing, not distracted by lesser things, with my eye on the greatest thing. Our Lord Jesus himself is the prize that is set before us. It's him we seek, it's him we want, it's him we want to know, it's him we want to walk with, it's his life we want more and more in our own. Forgetting what lies behind. Forget about yesterday. Forget about what seemed to be achievements. Forget about what seemed a failure. I will press on to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that. We ask, Father, that you would do your work. Father, that you would, you would sharpen your call on our lives. Lord, in the midst of the choices that are before us, in the midst of the currents, Father, that easily uh, push us one way or another, Father, would you sharpen that homing instinct? Father, would you... Pull our hearts toward you. Would you strengthen our will by your grace? Would you, Lord, in your mercy, make choices clearer for us? Lord, give us practice in the next steps. By today, tomorrow, showing us one of those choices, an easy one, one that is for someone else, for Jesus. And Lord, give us the courage as we would give ourselves away, as we would use what we have. Father, that's true in this offering. It's true of my time. It's true of our homes. Whatever resources you lay in our hands, Father, that we would use this for your glory, that you would use all of this in drawing us to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.